Gear up for the great outdoors with Forlo, the brand that's revolutionizing outdoor apparel. Forlo's non-compromised, 100% American-made outdoor apparel protects your body from the elements so that your mind stays focused on the hunt, on the water, or on the trail. Your adventure starts with a solid foundation, which is why Forlo's base layer is designed to provide the comfort and insulation you need to keep going when the temperatures drop. Their uniquely breathable down layer ensures that you stay warm without overheating. And since proper protection goes beyond insulation, the final layer, a waterproof shield, completes the system. From UPF sunblocking material that shields you from harmful rays to polygene technology that masks your scent, Forlow's innovative designs and cutting-edge material ensures that you can focus on the adventure, not the elements. Their commitment to innovation and American craftsmanship will carry you beyond the known and into the unknown where the journey truly begins. Get the most out of your time in the outdoors and go to forlow.com and use code DAILYWIRE for 20% off your purchase. That's forlow.com, code DAILYWIRE. 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos. That is the title of Jordan Peterson's new book, and we are lucky to have him on the show to cure the ample chaos that we have here, uh, this show, of course, being an antidote to order. It is a runaway bestseller. We will discuss why as well as how you can uh, find order and meaning in this chaotic, desiccated soy boy culture of ours. I'm Michael Knowles, and this is The Michael Knowles Show. Stand up straight with your shoulders back. Treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. Pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. These are just some of Jordan Peterson's rules for life. I can't give them all away, obviously, because then you won't buy the book, and you should buy the book. This book has clearly struck a cultural nerve. Number four best-selling book in the U.S., according to Publishers Weekly. Number one on Amazon. Number two on the Washington Post list. Number four on USA Today. Only the New York Times refused Dr. Peterson the honor for some bogus excuse. Seems to me I've heard that song before. Uh, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson is a clinical psychologist, cultural critic, and professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. Dr. Peterson has almost a million subscribers on YouTube, and his videos have been viewed almost 47 million times. David Brooks calls this the Jordan Peterson moment, and we are now lucky to be joined by him. Jordan, not David Brooks, obviously much, much better to be joined by Jordan Peterson to discuss the 12 rules of life. Dr. Peterson, thank you for being here. Thanks very much for the invitation. So let's get into trouble with the frivolous thought police right off of the bat. The book is subtitled An Antidote to Chaos. You describe order as masculine, the wise king at best, the tyrant at worst, and you describe chaos as feminine. These days, we're told that gender is socially constructed, a figment of our imagination. How deeply entrenched is sex? How far back do our categories of masculine and feminine go? Well, they go back as well. They go back hundreds and hundreds of millions of years, and they do seem to form part of our fundamental cognitive architecture. We tend to see the world in in social cognitive categories. We we tend to see the world as if it's an animated place, and the 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 idea that sex is a large part of being animated is an extraordinarily deep biological perceptual category. So it can't be dispensed with in, in any straightforward manner. It's part of the way that we view the world. Then the idea that that the the way that we express ourselves sexually, say let's call that gender, is malleable is obviously true to a certain degree because human beings are extraordinarily malleable creatures. You can tell that just by looking at fashion variation. Um, but that doesn't mean that Gender differences are all sociocultural constructs. And in fact, the 
the evidence that they're not, I would say, is crystal clear. The, the, the political types are about 30 years behind the social science, maybe maybe 50 years behind it. That's why they're desperately turning to legislative means to enforce their idiot view of humanity on the rest of the world. That, that is something I frequently notice about politics and culture, is the pop culture and the politics, they are always lagging several decades behind. So you'll see people espousing some relativistic or nihilistic view of the world. And you say like, listen, man, I know you think you're sophisticated, but you're actually <laughs> several decades behind. I, I want to talk about a dream uh, that you write about in the book. You had a dream when writing Maps of Meaning, your first book, that you were hanging from a chandelier in a cathedral with tiny little people below. And you woke up in your bed and you still saw cathedral doors. Close your eyes again, you're back in the center of the cathedral. Was that vision a sign from God or was it the fever dream of an academic who's been thinking too much? And is there a difference? <laughs> well, I'm not sure there's a difference. I mean, it took me a long time to understand what the dream meant, but I eventually did. I mean, I knew at that point, or I had figured out as part of the process of, it, of interpreting that dream, let's say, that cathedrals were constructed in the shape of a cross. And so to be hanging at the center of the cross, which is essentially where the dream put me, was, well, obviously, you know, that's something that can be read in terms of its fundamental religious significance. But that isn't, that isn't, that, that, that isn't the most appropriate level of analysis, I wouldn't say. The reason, that, the, the reason that cathedrals are constructed in the shape of a cross is because the cross is a, uh, an X that marks the spot, so to speak. It's the center place of being. And we're each at the center place of being, and that's a place of, that's a place of suffering. And so part of the Christian injunction is to voluntarily accept that and to thereby transcend it. And the dream was pointing to me, was pointing out the inevitability of that, the, the fact that I was being driven towards that conclusion. You see, I would, I'd been spent, I'd been spending years, I would say by that point, meditating and thinking about the fact of the Cold War and about this terrible ideological catastrophe that we had placed ourselves in the midst of, um, partly ideological possession, driving our proclivity to put the world at risk. And, as an alternative to that, kind of a nihilistic hopelessness that involved no central narratives whatsoever. I suppose that would be the postmodern conundrum. And I was trying to see if there was a pathway between those extremes that 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 was functional. And the dream was part of that process of of realization. And that the, the alternative to ideological possession and nihil, nihilistic hopelessness is something like the lifting up of individual responsibility as the proper mode of being, and that, that involves voluntary acceptance of suffering. Right? You're not going to act responsibly and forthrightly in the world if you're bitter and resentful because of, your, because of the fact that your life is tragic and that things often go wrong. So you have to transcend that, it, and that the dream was part of the process by which I was starting to understand that. I do want to get back a little bit to that X marks the spot later because it, we see it in the Christian tradition. We see traditionally the cross is uh, represented with a skull at the bottom of it because it's Adam's skull and uh, yeah, Christ right. is the new Adam. Uh, I, I want to get back yeah, to well, that. Yeah, well, see the idea, to, well, the idea there, that's an unbelievably profound idea. The idea there is that um, the first man, so to speak, the man who's laden with original sin and, and the knowledge of death is Adam, of course. And that Christ, what Christ represents is the antidote to what brought Adam down. And so 
Adam was brought down by knowledge of death and knowledge of good and evil, knowledge of mortality, knowledge of nakedness, all of that was what produced the fall. So that's that's an emergence into self-consciousness and and the and the emergence of the tragedy of the self-conscious world. And then Christ is portrayed as an antidote to that. And the antidote is voluntarily acceptance of that burden and simultaneously transcendent, simultaneous transcendence of it as a consequence of the voluntary adoption. And that's put forth in the Christian corpus as the imitation of Christ. So, which is a theme, of course, that runs through Catholicism and Protestantism and Orthodox Christianity alike. I don't think it's something that's, that's attended to enough in the Western Christian traditions, which tend to emphasize our universal salvation through the sacrifice of Christ, which is, well, it has its utility in that it takes some of the moral responsibility off human beings, but it has its price too, because it does the same thing. It, it lessens the, it lessens the, lessens the importance of what each of us do to some degree. And the sobriety of it. Right. You know, there is the, Christ tells us, uh, take up your cross, uh, but he also says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, and it is, it is true, certain traditions fall a little bit too much to one side or to the other, and they don't, they don't hold that tension that, that you see in, the, in your dream, that it clearly uh, pervades the book. Uh, I, I want... Well, that idea, too, of the burden being light, that's a very interesting one, because it's a very great paradox. But, you know, one of the things that's quite interesting about attempting to only say things that you believe to be true and then also to acting acting in a manner commensurate with that is that it does make things lighter because you're no, you're much less likely to be burdened by your past you know you're not guilty and afraid that the terrible things that you've done are going to come to light and you're not sleeping uneasily on a, a bed of nails that's your guilty conscience and so there's a lightness about it that and, and a lightness about accepting things even though it's a very dark act in some sense to accept things, there's a lightness that comes along with it. Um, it's the lightness of being all in, I would say, something like that. And the opposite of that, when one doesn't have that, the culture is so burdened by itself, it, it begins to hate itself. You write, uh, quote, now also another problem has arisen, which was perhaps less common in our harsher past. It is easy to believe that people are arrogant and egotistical and always looking out for themselves. The cynicism that makes that opinion a universal truism is widespread and fashionable, but such an orientation to the world is not at all characteristic of many people. They have the opposite problem. They shoulder yeah. intolerable burdens of self-disgust, self-contempt, shame, and self-consciousness. Why in 2018 do we so hate ourselves? Well, I think that that paragraph does, does lay out a lot of it, but we've, we've added additional sources of guilt to that that are are, I think, part of the modern, what would you call, manifestation of the idea that human beings have original sin and are fallen creatures. Like, we blame ourselves en masse for the depredations that the planet suffers at our hands, and let's say, without any commensurate sympathy for ourselves. I mean, there are a lot of us, you know, we're, we're, we're going to hit 9 billion by midway through this century, and then it looks like things will probably um, level out. But that's a lot of people, and we're we're putting a very heavy load on on planetary resources, let's say, and outcompeting a lot of animals. And well, you know the whole environmental catastrophe story. You bloody well hear that all the time. But you know, mostly what we're trying to do is to survive and survive with a relative minimum of excess misery. And we're trying to do that the best way we can see fit. It's only been since the 1960s 
that we've started to recognize ourselves as a force of planetary significance. Right. You know, a hundred years ago, we believed the oceans were inexhaustible. That was a conclusion that was that was drawn by a commission that was set up by the British Parliament. And so, it's only been not not even in my lifetime. You know, I'm older than the idea that we are a planetary shaping force. But we 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 carry ter terrible guilt about about the price we have to pay for existence. You know, and you hear people say things like, "Well, the planet would be better off without us," which is like an absolutely horrifying thing to say, right. but but it's but it I can understand why people say it, even though I think it's a dreadful thing to say. But it's never said with any sympathy. Like we we're fighting against mortality itself, as and all the suffering that goes along with that. It's not surprising that we don't do it perfectly. It's a virtually impossible load. And so if you add that existential load as the member of a of a species, say with with the kind of power we have to the knowledge that each person has of their own inadequacy and failings, then, you know, we carry a heavy existential burden with something that was very well developed by the existential psychologists of the 1950s. And people feel guilty and ashamed about, about being, just about being human. And then they don't treat themselves very well. Mm -hmm. And that's not helpful. It's, it's, not a, it's not a solution to the problem. It isn't even anti-American or anti-Western or this. It is anti-human fundamentally. And you quote the, the Columbine shooter in the book who wrote, yep. nothing means anything anymore. And one aspect I really enjoy about this book is the constant weaving together of different disciplines, of university, of philosophy and psychology. Everybody and her mother is on depression drugs these days. And yet I suspect a great deal of apparently psychological problems are really essentially f philosophical problems. Uh, this pervasive cultural nihilism that robs people of meaning, of a sense of meaning. What portion of our social malaise do you think is philosophical? And how did we get here? Oh, I think it's deeper than that even. It might be theological. Like I think the culture war that we're in is essentially a theological war. I, I agree. It's, yeah. a war on, it's a war on the very idea of the transcendent individual. And some of that, some of that can be conceptualized psychologically, but, but, but that's not the deepest possible level of conceptualization. I mean, our culture is predicated on the idea that each human being, this is this, this is the source of the idea of natural right, let's say, or of individual sovereignty. There's an idea that each person is uh, is touched by divinity, let's say, and is made in the in the image of God. That actually means something in the context of the story within which it's to be interpreted. So the word of God, which was active at the beginning of time in the Judeo-Christian account of creation, used truthful language to extract habitable order from chaos. And I think that is what human beings do. I don't think we've ever formulated a more accurate representation of the nature of human consciousness mm -hmm. because we confront potential. We call that the future. We confront an infinite landscape of potential and we choose how we're going to make it manifest itself in concrete reality. Like that is really what our consciousness seems to do. And, and that brings new being into being. And our legal systems are predicated on the idea that that capacity should be given all due respect, right? As the generator and recreator of culture itself. And like, you can't just throw away that idea. It's the idea on our, which our society rests. And, the postmodern neo-Marxist types are after that idea, hammer and tongs. They hate everything about it. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think it's a theological battle. 
That's why Derrida said, you know, he called Western culture fellow, fellow-gocentric, fellow, P-H-A-L-L-O. And he meant male-dominated and logo-centered, which is, well, it's certainly logo-centered. Is he going to criticize that? Well, yeah, I'm going to criticize the idea of the of the sovereign individual, and right. that's certainly what the postmodern types do. Didn't and, he? Didn't Derrida say? upon them, I would say. Didn't he say there's nothing outside of the text, or it's all everything is relative, everything is a matter of interpretation? Yeah, well, he disputed whether or not he really said that, but I think of that course it's he pretty would. Accurate. <laughs> well, right, and I think it's a pretty accurate summation of the postmodern ethos there. They're skeptical of meta-narratives, of transcendent narratives. Well, that's all well and good, except that, like, if you and I make an agreement so that we can live together peacefully and cooperate and compete over the long run, it's because we've established a narrative that transcends both our individual identities. And if we're going to live together as a culture, that means that despite our individual and cultural differences, let's say, and let's say we can maintain as many of them as possible, we need to subordinate ourselves to a transcendent narrative that actually constitutes the framework for peace and cooperation right. and, and, for, and for civilized competition. There's no let's dispense with the, with the meta-narrative. Mm -hmm. It's like that means let's dispense with that which unites us. Well, then all we have is fragments, and then we're going to fight because human beings tend to fragment towards their tribes and then fight. Right. And that's what I see happening both on the left. The left is pushing it, I would say, with, 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 with everything they've got. And the radical right is responding in kind. Mm -hmm. It's really not good. It, does, it doesn't lead anywhere good. And I love this central theme of the book of culture as a, a natural fact of the world. Because in our highly scientific age, many people seem to think or take it as a given that we just perceive the bare world, the valueless facts of the world uh, without any meaning. And then we ascribe later meaning to those things. You write in the book, uh, quote, there is little more natural than culture that we perceive. Yeah, well, I mean... Well, I, my, my question on this is, what, what does that say about how we should live? Well, it, it, one of the things it says is that you can't exist outside of a framework of value. It's not possible. It's not technically possible. I outline this in, in quite, quite a bit of detail in chapter 10, which is called rule 10, which is called be, be precise in your speech, is that the way the world manifests itself to you is integrally tied to your value structure. And that's because, to put it very simply, is that your very vision is dependent on an aim. Like whenever you look at the world, you're aiming at something. You're aiming at something with your eyes. You, you can't focus on something without aiming at it, and you won't aim at it without valuing it. So your very perceptions are dependent on your value structure. Now that doesn't mean there isn't a world. It means that, it does mean that experience is a complex interplay of your value structure and and the unmanifest world, it's something like that. And then that begs the question, which is, well, if you have to have a value structure, then what should it be? Well, and then that brings us back to the ideas that we were talking about earlier. Like you, 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 should, you should value being, you should take on the responsibility of being as your highest ethical obligation and try to improve it, try to reduce suffering, try to, try to make the most out of yourself in a way that's beneficial to you and your family and your community. You should aim high and your perceptions will reconfigure themselves around those aims and that will allow the world to manifest itself to you in the most positive possible manner, or at least in the most meaningful possible manner.
And in the absence of that, all you have is stupid suffering. That is, that is the anxiety and depression that we talked about earlier. Without a point, without value, without an aim, all you're left with is the misery and anxiety of life. That makes people bitter. I love the even the note to, to bring up the notion of the aim because there are one can react to this stupid suffering <laughs> in a number of ways. But this is so clear. You write in it. You say uh, you, you cannot aim yourself at anything if you are completely undisciplined and untutored. You will not know what to target. You won't fly straight even if you do get your aim right. And and then you will conclude there is nothing to aim for and then you will be lost. And, and these days, the prevailing moral framework, as I see it, is if it feels good, do it. Uh, how is it that discipline and the straight and narrow offer the best chance for a good life? And, and well, uh, how is it that we have forgotten yeah. that is the case? Well, the reason that discipline is necessary is because you're a mass of competing short-term interests. And so the question is then, well, which short-term interests should win out? And the answer to that is, well, none of them. They need to be organized into a hierarchy that makes them functional across time and across individuals. So like a two-year-old is very likely to act out his or her proximal impulse. But of course, a two-year-old can't survive in the world. You have to, you have to bring your, your primary instincts, let's say, under the regulatory structure of a higher order value system that allows them to manifest themselves without undue mutual sacrifice across large spans of time in the presence of large numbers of other people. So that requires a very sophisticated ordering. It's like we already talked about the fact that a meta narrative is necessary to unite subcultures, say, so that they can operate peacefully and harmoniously within the same space. The same thing applies within you because you're like an you're an internal coalition of warring single-minded tribes, and they have to all be brought under the organizational structure of long-term collective vision, let's say. And in order to do that, you have to be disciplined. And any discipline, speaking, you know, technically speaking, is an attempt to bring all those competing short-term impulses under a large, a larger scale and more inclusive framework. And so you do that and then. Well, that's actually what gives you freedom. Being impulsive and being free aren't the same things, because if you're impulsive, you're just the slave of your impulses. Right. There's no freedom in that. That's that's just that's the same freedom, so to speak, literally that a two year old has because a two year old isn't socialized yet. So it's not it's a completely. It, it, that doesn't function in this in the sophisticated world. It doesn't work. Right. Everyone knows it. We just like to pretend sometimes to say, oh, that does feel good, you know. Now, I, I have one well, last... Well, we like to pretend all the time because <laughs> that's why we go out and drink, you know, because drinking enables you to blind yourself to the long-term consequences of your actions. And there's no doubt that that's very, very rewarding in the short term, but it's also why you wake up the next morning hungover and ashamed. I must tell you, Dr. Peterson, we celebrated St. Patrick's Day and my birthday on this Saturday, and I can attest with real-world experience to your theoretical notions. I have one last question that I want to ask you, but before we do that, and I think this is the this question is really good. I think it's the crux of the matter. Before we do that, we have to thank a very Jordan Peterson-y sponsor. This is serendipitous and providential, you might say. This wonderful sponsor is Skillshare. 
Skillshare. This is not just something to go wander around and loaf and, you know, waste your time carousing. This is something to make yourself better and get your life in order and take, make some order out of chaos. And this is a wonderful app. Uh, they've been with us a long time. Uh, Skillshare is an online learning platform with over 18,000 classes in design, business, technology, and more. You can take the classes in graphic design, social media marketing, illustration, mobile photography. One that I've really enjoyed is on time management. It's on how to stop procrastinating and wasting all of your time and not cleaning your room and all the things you should do to have a, a good and orderly life. You name it, they've got it. So whether you're trying to deepen your professional skill set, start a side hustle, just explore a new passion, or bring order out of chaos, you should check out Skillshare. It is really good. It's there to keep you learning and thriving. Uh, I've I really enjoyed doing it. And don't say I never did nothing for you. You can join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for my listeners, two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. That is less than a dollar more than nothing. Two months of Skillshare, you would be foolish not to do it. You would uh, truly, clearly have taken nothing from this book if you don't go and try to better yourself. What a way to do that than to get two months of Skillshare for 99 cents. Skillshare is offering Michael Knowles Show listeners unlimited access to over 18,000 classes, 99 cents. Go to Skillshare.com slash Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, to start your two months now. What is that address? Skillshare.com slash Michael. Dr. Peterson, you call for people to consider meaning as the higher good. You write, consider then that the alleviation of unnecessary pain and suffering is a good. Later in the book, you call Satan and our image of hell a dreamlike fantasy. Later still, you say that hell is metaphysically true. In the final chapters, you write a very moving, what seems to be series of prayers to, quote, the source of all revelatory thought in a discussion with God. My question, which is it? I'm not asking about metaphor or symbol and symbolized or signifier and signified. Is God fact or fantasy? Maybe God's both. But if you had to pick one, I, mean, <laughs> I don't mean to be glib about it. Well, no, I don't, I don't think you can do that in a, in a discussion like this because you're talking about matters where the distinction between those things actually starts to blur. No, because there's a reality, for example, there's a reality to fantasy that we don't really understand. Fantasy is how new things come into being. And fantasy has a structure. It has this archetypal structure. And so, I mean... Let's see if I can come up with a better. I, I can't. I can't come up with an answer to that. That's so blunt. Because look, one of the things I mentioned while we were having this discussion was that our legal system is predicated on the idea that each individual is made in the image of God, and that there's actually a reason for that. That it's tied into the Judeo-Christian narrative, and the narrative suggests that the way that you bring habitable order, the habitable order that is good into being, so that's what happens in Genesis at the beginning of, of time, is by using truthful speech, and that there's something divine about that. It's like, as far as I'm concerned, that's a fantasy, but it's also factually true. It's a place where the metaphor and the literal unite. But is there a distinction and to be made here between uh, metaphor, metaphysical reality, and some sort of fantasy, you know, uh, in, in the sense that uh, a unicorn 
would be a fantasy. I don't think a unicorn is, has metaphorical, uh, metaphorical truth and me metaphysical reality. But uh, oh, I think there are some forms of fantasy that don't have their literal counterpart, let's say. Sure. They don't have their real counterpart, but there are some places where fantasy and reality meet. And we don't understand those places very well. Now, I don't understand them very well. I think part of the reason that I have a hard time answering questions like that is because they transcend the limits of my knowledge. I actually don't know how to answer the question. Like, I see, because it is the case, as far as I can tell, that the central presumption of our functional legal system is that each person has within them a spark of divinity and that that spark of divinity manifests itself in the bringing into being of the present from the potential of the future. I think that's all true. Is that a fact? Like, is, is that the sort of truth that we would call a fact? I well, think so. It isn't this, well, possibly, but it's, it's, not, it's not the sort of fact that you discover that it doesn't, it doesn't sit easily in the category of facts that scientists have produced. Right. It's more like an inference. So let's say you observe a bunch of people acting a particular way, and then you say, well, here's the rule that describes their action. You say, well, does that, does that rule represent what does that rule represent? Does that represent a reality? Well, it represents a reality of sorts, but it isn't the same sort of reality that's represented by a pure scientific discovery. They're not in the same category. So I'm not exactly sure what, I'm, look, if, here again, here's the observation. If people treat one another as if they're touched by divinity, their personal lives improve, their familial lives improve, their social structures stabilize, they produce functional political systems and, and productive economies. Does that make that proposition true? Well, possibly, but it doesn't make the proposition a fact in the same way that scientific investigation makes a scientific of, fact of true. Of course. I, I asked the question so it's in complicated. this- I asked the question in this way because I think you write with heartbreaking beauty about Christianity, about the, the metaphysical logos that is made flesh and dwells among us. And uh, w watching you write about this in the book is hugely edifying. So I reckon we talk about theological issues a lot on the show. I highly recommend that uh, everybody goes out and reads uh, 12 Rules for Life. And also, I, I press the question that way because my bishop promised me a toaster if I could baptize you. But that we might have to save that for another program. <laughs> Dr. Peterson, thank you so much for being here. It has been a wonderful conversation. I will finally allow you to go, go on and move on with, I'm sure, your very uh, busy rest of your day. Well, thank you very much for the interview and for the conversation. Jordan Peterson. All right. We, do I have to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube now? Okay. All right. That's fine. I wanted to keep uh, Dr. Peterson on for everybody as long as possible because he's, he's fascinating to talk to. So if you are on YouTube right now, I don't believe you. If you're on Facebook, please go to dailywire.com. Uh, you will get me. You'll get the Andrew Clavin show. You'll get the Ben Shapiro show. You can ask questions in the mailbag. And if you ask them to Jordan, I'll just, I'll tweet them along to him. I'll try to, you know, try to get us all our toaster. Um, but none of that matters, of course, because what you have is that you need the leftist tears tumbler. I know what you think. You think that, oh, I can just have the abstract concept of a vessel for leftist tears. I, you know, the, the leftist tears, they float in the forms. They're sort of ethereal, aren't they? No, that, that is another ex, uh, 
evidence of signifier and signified becoming one. And you need this real physical and metaphysical leftist tears tumbler so that you can hold them because they are delicious. They're delicious in the mind and they're physically so salty and good. Go to dailywire.com. We'll be right back. That conversation was far too esoteric and ethereal to leave off on when we've got so many funny, absurd things in the news. So for the last few minutes here, we've, I cannot help but go through all of these. Hillary Clinton is blaming other people for her problems again. My fourth cousin, twice removed, I actually forget it, the relationship, somewhere around there. She is blaming other people for her problems. I know it's breaking news. I know this is shocking. Last week in India, maybe two weeks ago, Hillary Clinton was asked, why did you lose? How did you lose? And she blamed poor racist Republicans, as well as the empty headed women who only do what their husbands tell them to do, uh, which is elect Donald Trump. Uh, and obviously we all knew this to be true. She caught some flack for it though. She, so this outrageous statement, she says, oh yeah, all the rich people voted for me and all the women who didn't vote for me hate themselves and they're, they're slaves or something. Now she's apologizing. She's apologizing and she's really sorry that you misinterpreted her. That was the apology. <laughs> First, she blamed the questions. She said, well, they asked me these questions. It's really, the reason that I had this faux pas is they asked me the questions and I told the truth. But then she apologizes because you misunderstood her. She said, quote, I understand how some of what I said upset people and can be misinterpreted. I meant no disrespect to any individual or group. What, what do you mean misinterpreted? How, I don't, I actually don't see how what you said could be misinterpreted. You said poor racist Republicans and slavish women voted for Donald Trump. That's it. This is why we don't like Hillary Clinton. This is why she can't uh, resuscitate herself. First of all, this apology is disingenuous and deceitful. It just is, she's, she's not apologizing. It's like little bratty teenagers do this. They say, well, I'm sorry if you feel that way. Don't apologize for my feelings. You don't control my feelings. Apologize for what you did. Uh, second, it's arrogant and disdainful. You know, it's, oh, well, you don't, you just, you, clearly you plebes don't understand. But it's also broadly contemptuous of her fellow countrymen. It just, she doesn't like them. She think, thinks they're poor, racist rubes, and any woman who doesn't support abortion on demand and vote for her is somehow self-hating. Uh, I'm, I keep it up, Hillary. Like the, I, I know it's the Macedonian teenagers. It's the click farms. It's James Comey. It's blah, 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 blah. Keep, keep adding to it. She's just, the, the Clintons are constitutionally incapable of shame. They are immune, fully immune from shame. And this is just more evidence of it. Keep on keeping on. Another news story we have to hit is that uh, Jews are responsible for the snow. I don't know if you knew that or you read that. A Democrat councilman from D.C., Trayvon White, is blaming a snowstorm on the Jews. Not global, this might be an improvement from global warming, but I, uh, you, you're probably going in the wrong direction, actually. I don't know that that's more credible. He said, quote, man, it just started snowing out of nowhere this morning, man. Y'all better pay attention to this climate control, man, this climate manipulation. And that's a model based off the Rothschilds controlling the climate to create natural disasters they can pay for to own the city's man, be careful. Uh, yeah, it'd be careful. This refers to, there's this, you know, the Rothschilds were a famous banking family and Jewish. And so there are all these conspiracy theories about them. And so now uh, 
you know, snow is the fault of the Jews, which is fine. Cause I know they're the global media elite and the international banking community and the neoconservative elite, or I don't, there are a lot of euphemisms that these guys use, <laughs> but uh, now uh, they control the weather. The reason I, obviously this guy's a dummy, but the, the reason I bring it up, he's a councilman in the nation's capital. It's a funny story. If this had been a Republican dog catcher in Palookaville, USA, there would be petitions right now for Donald Trump to resign for some reason. I don't know why. They say it's Trump's fault. He elected this dog catcher. We're talking about a sitting councilman in the nation's capital accusing Jews of controlling the snowstorms. The the, the left-wing media portray Republicans as racist kooks. Uh, they do this frequently. They've done it for decades and decades. They don't portray their own people as racist kooks, even though there are ample racist kooks among them, probably more than in the Republican side. They do this, the left-wing media do this to make it socially unacceptable to call oneself a Republican or a conservative. So, you know, oh, you're a, oh, you got to be one of those toothless hicks. That's what Hillary Clinton was doing to everybody. But then this DC councilman goes on and accuses the Jews of, of uh, controlling the weather and all of a sudden, you know, there's a little blip. It's, it goes on the Daily Wire, but that's it. No one really talks about it. If it had been a Republican in the middle of America, this, this would be running for a week or two weeks. You got to pay attention to this because they do it so that when you're in a, an elite place or on a college campus or in a boardroom, you would never admit to being a Republican. They've got way more kooks than we do, and they're way kookier. They're so kooky, they'd even elect Hillary Clinton president. They vote for her. Uh, don't let them have it. Uh, one other story, Jeff Flake might be running for president. He, he said, quote, I, as you know, am retiring from the Senate at the end of the year. It has not been my plan to run for president, but I've not ruled it out. I hope that somebody does run in the Republican primary, somebody to challenge the president. <laughs> he doesn't sip his Chardonnay correctly. No. <laughs> I think that Republicans want to be reminded what it means to be a traditional, decent Republican and what the party stands for. Limited government, economic freedom, free trade, and no borders whatsoever so we can flood the country with cheap labor and elect Democrats. Well, he didn't say that. He actually said embracing immigration. These are things that have made the party what it is over the years. And I think that people are wanting to hear that reminder. So I don't know who it'll be. I think the odds that I will uh, do it are long, but I've not ruled it out because we need to use our champagne flutes correctly. Uh, it is more likely that the Jews control the weather than that Jeff Flake will ever be president. There is not a chance this guy is going to be president. It's so pathetic though, because when, when you look at what he's saying, he said, we don't, this, this is such an outrage. President Trump is such an outrage as a Republican. I mean, look at what the party used to stand for. Limited government. Donald Trump has cut the government by more than any president in modern history. He's cut entitlement, or uh, entitlement, I wish he'd cut entitlements. He's cut regulations and he has slashed the federal bureaucracy more than any president in modern history. Uh, economic freedom, yep, ditto. Uh, and we got a great tax reform bill uh, that, that uh, grew economic freedom. Free trade, he's threatening tariffs, but no more than other presidents. And he's probably not even going to enact them except against China. And embracing immigration. It, well, we're not, by the way, uh, Illegal alien, amnesty for illegal aliens is not, is not immigration. That's not the same thing. Democrats want to ally those things. They're completely different. Um, so Jeff Lake is never going to be president. It's really funny. I hope he runs. That would be unbelievable. I would be so thrilled. That's our show. We got to say goodbye. I do want one last point. Uh, you know that uh, British interloper, limey hack, John Oliver, you know, for some reason he colludes with Democrats and interferes in our elections. Uh, so he went on his program and made fun of Charlotte Pence, our pal Charlotte Pence. Uh, and her, she has a book called 
uh, Marlon Bundo. It's about the vice presidential bunny rabbit. And so he made one where Marlon Bundo is gay because all de- the only thing that Democrats care about in 2018 is gay sex. That is the o- that is the height of fi- philosophy, politics, and uh, moral f- uh, moral philosophy is just that. They, they, they don't have room to think about anything else. So uh, anyway, all of his fans, all of these empty heads are going to Amazon and leaving one star reviews on Charlotte Pence's book. Let's get that spirit of 76. Let's punch that limey right in the proverbial virtual mouth and go uh, leave five star reviews for Charlotte's book and order it. I've got a copy right over there, a signed copy. It's pretty cool. Uh, Let's go do that because that British guy drives me so freaking crazy. Okay, that's our show today. I'm Michael Knowles. This is the Michael Knowles Show. Come in tomorrow. We'll do it all again. Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018.